0: A few years ago, an article was written in a popular magazine titled, The Season of Promise. And the author writes, it's the most wonderful time of the year, full of so much promise. It's the reason we decorate early, we shop often, we plan the perfect parties, we hope for the perfect gifts, we watch the Christmas story on TBS a dozen times, we cross our fingers that everyone gets along at our family gatherings, we pray for world peace and even dream of a white Christmas. But in the end the season always leaves us disappointed. Actually, it should be called the season that overpromises and underdelivers. Regardless of what you believe this morning, if you don't understand the real promise, the real promise of God that those people in the Old Testament were anticipating that first Christmas, and this season, like so many others, will leave you disappointed as well. And to understand the promise of God, the promise of God this Advent and this Christmas, and how it's fulfilled at Christmas time, we need to go back to the beginning. We have to look back to the book of beginnings in, in Genesis. And what we will see in Genesis, specifically here in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, we will see that the Christmas story does not begin in a manger. But if it begins in a garden, and it's in the garden that we see the promises of God revealed. We see in the garden the promises of God revealed to his people and to us this morning. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, but, but before we do so, for those that are unfamiliar with the book of Genesis, here's a brief recap of what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 reveals the creation account. It reveals to us very plainly that God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates the heavens and the earth perfectly. And not only does he create the heavens and the earth perfectly, but he creates male and female, and he enters into a perfect relationship with them. Think about what that would have been like for God, the God that creates the heavens and the earth, to enter into a perfect relationship with humanity. And he tells humanity, and he creates humanity in his image, and he tells male and female, he tells them, You can eat from any tree in the garden. And specifically, you can eat from the tree that gives life. See, the promise was that you would be in a relationship with God, a perfect relationship with God, and it would last forever. But just don't do one thing. There is one tree in the midst of the garden, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you shouldn't eat from that tree. Not only should you not eat from that tree, you shouldn't touch it, lest you die. And so that's where we come to in Genesis chapter 3. God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates man in his own image. He allows them to eat freely from the tree of life. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what I want us to do this morning... Because I want us to look briefly at the story of Genesis chapter 3. I want us to walk through specifically the first 10 verses. Because I think it helps us understand ultimately what the promises of God are and what God is up to this Christmas. And it's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. See, the serpent was the the incarnation. We'll later find out that the serpent was the incarnation of Satan, that it's Satan himself in the form of a serpent. And the serpent here will play the role in Genesis 3 as the anti-God, the one that is opposed to God, the one that is an adversary of God, which is the definition of Satan. And that is the role that the serpent will play here in the garden with the woman, And it says, he said to the woman, did God actually say to you that you shall not eat from the tree of life or from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman in verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. See, what the serpent is doing, playing the role of the adversary, playing the role of one that is opposed to God, what does he do? He does it so cunningly to the woman and he does it to us. He begins to twist the words of God. He begins to tr- twist the truth of God. Did God really say this and did God really say that? And if you'll die, of course you won't die. Actually... He twists the truth and he says, actually, when you eat of it, you'll become like God. Who wouldn't want that? You see, the reason that God didn't want Adam and Eve, the reason he didn't want humanity to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because it would give them wisdom that was only reserved for God. See, only God can be the ultimate judge of that which is good and that which is evil. Only God can be the one that can make that type of judgment. See, see, humanity up until this point only knew that which was good for life. But as soon as they eat, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would know not only what is good, but that which is evil. And that was a role reserved only for God. But what happens in verse 6? It says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she ate she ate, took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. What happens? She looks at it, she sees it, and she realizes that this fruit can actually give me power, that this fruit can actually give me control, and who wouldn't want that? See, this was not a philosophical quest for Eve. This wasn't some attempt to gain more information, this was an attempt for power and control. Wow. Well, n- On the one hand, I only know good. But if I eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I can know both good and evil. And knowing those things, being the judge of both good and evil, I can have power and I can have control and I can be like God. And after all, who doesn't want that? And she sees it. It's the epitome of pragmatism. She wants power and she wants control. She wants to be like God. And what happens? She's tempted by the serpent She eats of the fruit, and she gives it to her husband. And this is the fall. The world from this point on will never be the same. The world is turned upside down. And what happens as a result? In verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of them were both open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. How tragic. How tragic. The eyes, the eyes of the man and the woman are now open and their nakedness is a, is a symbol of vulnerability. It's a, it's a symbolic of shame. It's a symbolic of guilt and sin. And they're disgusted by themselves and they're disgusted by one another. And what do they do? They sew big big fig uh, fig leaves together and they cover themselves. But that's not the only tragedy. The very God that they entered into perfect relationship with, they now what? They're now hiding from him. Can you imagine the chaos that has ensued upon the garden? God creates this perfect paradise. He creates male and female in his image and he allows them to enter into a perfect relationship and now they're they're naked and they're vulnerable they're standing in their sin and standing in their shame and they actually are hiding from the presence of God that is a tragedy as they stand there in their guilt and in their shame you see they stand in the midst of the garden as complete failures they blew it they had it made they had it all, and they stand as failures, hiding from God and covering their shame. It's so bad, they can't even own it. What happens? It says but, uh, in verse 9, but the Lord God called the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And he said, who told you? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man says, what? The woman whom you gave me. Gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. There's so much chaos happening in the garden, they can't even own it. It's all this blame shifting. The man saying, the woman made me do it. The woman saying, the serpent made we do it. We have fig leaves covering our nakedness. They're hiding from God. They're blame shifting. You can sense the chaos that has ensued on the garden and into their lives. And they're standing there in their shame. And I ask you this morning, can you feel their sense of loss? Don't look at this story this morning as simply an event in history. I ask you this morning, do you feel their sense of loss? Do you feel their pain? Because I think this is a feeling that we all experience constantly. And I think it's a feeling if we're all honest with ourselves. We feel way too often more than we would ever hope to admit. The feeling of loss, the feeling of failure, the feeling of shame and guilt, and what we do in our lives, like the man and the woman in the garden, in their shame, hiding from God, we what we do is desperately, we run around trying to hold it all together never wanting anyone to see the real you, because after all, what would people think if they saw the real you? What would people think if they thought that I was a failure? You see, what would people think if they thought I wasn't a good husband? What What would people think if I wasn't a good spouse? What would people think if I really wasn't that good of a parent? What would people think if I really wasn't the leader I said I was? What would people think if I lost it all? What would people think if I wasn't really that significant as I tell people I am? What if they knew the real me? We are plagued. We are absolutely plagued by the fear of failure constantly. And we see these two in the midst of the garden, humiliated with nothing but fig leaves covering them. So how does God respond? Chaos and tragedy has entered the world, this perfect world. And how does God respond? In verse 14 and 15, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this cursed are you above the livestock and above the beast of the field and on your belly you shall go and eat from the dust all the days of your life and in verse 15 it says this I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel You see, how God responds is so important. And how God responds is this. He looks at the serpent and he says, Cursed are you. But I want to make something very clear. want to make something crystal clear. You have not captured the woman. You do not own the woman. You might think, serpent, that you have captured the woman for yourself, but she does not belong to you. And the way that I will show you that she does not belong to you and that she is not yours, I will forever put hostility between you and the woman. The Bible uses the word enmity. I will create war. I will create hostility between you and the woman as a reminder that that woman does not belong to you. You can tempt her, you can be cunning, but she does not belong to you. And I will forever create war between you and her, between your offspring and her offspring. And then in verse 15, the end of verse 15, what an incredible promise. What does he say? He says, he... Who's he? Between the offspring of the woman, between the offspring of the woman, what will happen? He will bruise your head. In some translations, it actually says he will crush your head. And at the end, it says you will bruise his heel. What is going on here? We have crushed heads, bruised heads, and bruised heels. What is happening here? What is happening here is this. And here is the promise this morning. God looks at the serpent, and he looks at the woman, and he looks at the man, and he says, one day, one day, there will be a child There will be a child that comes from the line of this woman that will crush the head of the serpent. There will be one day a child that comes from the line of this woman that will defeat death and defeat Satan and defeat sin and defeat evil once and for all. But it won't be before sacrifice happens. You will bruise his heel. What does it tell us? It tells us that one day there will be a child that comes from the offspring of the woman that will sacrifice himself, that will sacrifice his life to defeat sin and death. Does it sound familiar? Who is this child? What type of child would be born to eventually die? What type of child would eventually be born to sacrifice his life to defeat sin and death? I can only think of one child. You see, in verse 15, what do we see here? We see for the first time, we see the light of the gospel, we see the light of good news in the midst of what? In the midst and in the face of utter failure. For the man and the woman and for us this morning, it's the first glimpse of good news. It's the first glimpse, listen to this, it's the first glimpse that God will not abandon failures. And that... Is good news because we live under the weight and under the pressure every day of the fear of failure. We live under the burden and the weight of the shame and guilt and sin of the failures of our life. And God speaks to you this morning. He says, I will not abandon you. I will not abandon failures. And understanding how God responds here in the garden is the key. It is the very key to understanding how God's story of redemption, how God's story of rescue will unfold here in Genesis throughout history. Listen to this. He is on a mission. What we celebrate at Advent is this, that God is on a mission. He is on a mission from the garden until the end of time to rescue his people. And this will be accomplished through Christ. Christ. That is who we anticipate this Advent. We anticipate a rescuer. He is the one that we long for. We just don't long for a cute baby in a manger. We long for a warrior who will one day come to crush and defeat sin and death and rescue and redeem his children. We, we celebrate and we anticipate a warrior who will rescue his people from exile, and we will see that theme time and time again through the Scripture. That's why it says in Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people. He will deliver his people from their sins. But God doesn't stop here. You see, God leaves the man and the woman with an incredible visual of how this rescue will actually be accomplished. Look at verse 21. It says The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He took garments of skin. And he covers their shame and he covers their guilt and he covers their failure with garments of skin. Where did the skin come from? It came from an innocent animal. You see, God slaughtered an animal. He sacrificed an innocent animal on behalf of the man and the woman in light of their failure, in light of their shame. And he takes the skin of the innocent animal and he clothes them and he covers them and he hides them. And the male and the female, the man and the woman who were once born in innocence and lost it because they failed are now, now covered in innocence once again. But it's not their own innocence. It's someone else's innocence that covers them. And it wouldn't be their own. And this is exactly what Christ does for us at the cross. He takes our sin, and he takes our shame, and he takes our failure. And he gives us freely his righteousness. This is the gospel. This is the good news that at Christmas, Christ becomes our substitute. And for those that are in Christ this morning, for those that know Jesus, God looks down on you and doesn't see a failure. He sees the perfection of his son. And that is a Christmas miracle. That is good news. My son, who's five years old, loves to draw. And if you have children or you've been around children for any extended period of time, you know paper and crayons are a perfect match. And I came home one day and my son ran up to me, who's five years old, and he says, daddy, daddy, look at this picture that I drew. And I go, wow, it's amazing, what is it? And he goes, it's you, can't you tell? I go, wow, I could hardly recognize myself as the stick figure on the piece of paper. And it's the typical picture of a five-year-old. It's the, it's the face with one eye here and one eye off, you know, off to the right, almost off the page. And, uh, you know, a stick for a body and stick for arms and, and for legs. And I looked at it, this picture that a five-year-old drew. And he was so excited. He said, Daddy, it's you see to us it's a messy drawing to my son it's a work of art but he didn't stop there he takes the picture and if you're a parent you understand this there's a wall in our house with all of his drawings and he puts it on the wall and for a child that's the wall of honor and so to us it's messy To my son, it's a work of art. When he puts it on the wall, it's a thing of honor. And that's exactly what happens to us in Christ. He takes this messy picture. The reality is we're nothing more than a stick figure. We can try to pretend, we can try to hide, but at the end of the day, we're a messy drawing that you can barely make out. And we can pretend and we can fake it till we make it. But at the end of the day, we're just that drawing. But when Christ comes, he takes that messy drawing and he puts it on the wall. He puts it on the wall of honor. And he says, "You're mine." Francis Schaeffer said it best. He said, "For those that are in Christ, we walk around with a victorious limp. We're an honored failure. We're an honored mess." And any time I start to believe my own press, and I start to believe that I'm a little better than I think I am, I look at that picture and I go, you're just a stick figure. You're just a messy drawing. But because of the work that God has done in your life, you're put on the wall. You're put on the wall of honor. You see, I can be honest for the first time because of Christ you ever find yourself saying, I'm such a failure, I feel like such a failure. Maybe for the first time you can go, I am. But the miracle of Christmas is that God comes for failures. The miracle of Christmas is that God enters into the world for failures and he credits you with his righteousness. That is the miracle of Christmas. And you might be saying here, this morning, what does this mean, does it change anything, does it really matter practically how I live and I go, does it change anything, it changes everything, you see the the reality of the promise of God, that God does not abandon failures, but that God has sent his son from the beginning of time to rescue you, changes everything, it changes everything in your life, everything and everyone, it changes the way that you see everything and everyone, We begin to see each other for who we really are, a failure in need of rescue. It changes the way that you look at your spouse. It changes the way that you look at your children. Boy, if there's not a group of people that we have more expectations for, our spouse and our children, are they realistic expectations? The way we look at our spouse, the way we look at our children, the way we look at our parents, the way we look at our friends, even the way we look at our enemies, the way that we look at our political opposites, the ways that we look at our friends, and our neighbors, and our employer, and our employees, it changes the way that we look at those that we think are a little below us. It changes the way we look at those people that it's hard to even give the time of day It's a whole new outlook. It changes everything. Do you know this rescuer? This rescuer by the name of Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life for you, who died for you, who rose from the dead for you. Do you know him? In closing, it begs the question, if it changes us, did it change Adam did the preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 do anything to Adam? How did, he, how did Adam respond to this word of good news? Well, We see it here in verse 20. It says, the man called his wife. After hearing the gospel in the midst of failure, he looks at his wife and it says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Well, what does that tell us about Adam? It tells us everything about Adam. You see, Eve was not the mother of anything at that point. She didn't have any children. In fact, Adam would have had every right to say, because of the judgment and because of the condemnation, because of everything you have done to bring sin and death and condemnation into the world, I'm actually going to call you death. But he looks at her. And his beautiful bride has now been redeemed. And he says, I will call you Eve. I will call you Life, You see, Adam, without having any children of his own, without seeing his wife bear any children of her own, is able to look at her and say, I know because God told me that you, you and your line will bear a child that will bring life to me. You will bear a child that will bring life to you. You will bear a child one day through your line. A child will be born that will bring life to this world. Eve will bear a child through her line that will bring life to you and life to me. What a beautiful picture of redemption. Eve, in the midst of her failure, is blessed by her husband and says, You are the woman of life. You are the mother that will bring forth a child through your line one day that will bring life. To the world. What an incredible picture. A few weeks ago, I was having a long, hard day, and it was, I was sitting on the couch at home and with my wife, and we were going through the challenges of the day, and I was wiped out, I was tired, I was exhausted, and I was discouraged. And she looks over at me and she says, Rob, I love you. I'm proud of you. You have no idea what that meant in that moment. You see, if just anyone would have said that to me, it means very little. But my wife, who knows me, who really knows me, looks at me with all of my failures and all of my faults and is able to say, Rob, I love you. You see, that person, that person you believe, and that's exactly what God does. He looks down on you, and he knows you. He knows the real you. And with all of your faults and all of your failures, he looks at you and He says, I love you. You're mine. Does that melt your heart? My hope is that Christ this Christmas would be more than just that cute baby in a manger. I pray that the reality of his arrival and the promise of his rescue would transform your life and set you free forever. This Christ who rescues, this Christ who removes your shame, this Christ who covers your failures, And stands in your place. He offers himself to you this morning freely. And he says, come and find rest.